I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 120 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is not only one of Rock's great drummers, but also a composer, filmmaker, and especially thoughtful artist, Brendan Canty. His biggest claim to fame is as drummer for the band Fugazi, which, like Canty, sprung from the Washington, D.C. hardcore scene. Canty grew up in D.C. and now is raising his family there, his career and life shaped by the city he never left. He recalls growing up in a household filled with music and the memorable advice an older brother gave him about why he should play drums instead of a guitar or bass. His first band, Deadline, recorded for the D.C. indie punk label Discord, the home of all of Canty's bands, no matter how big they got. More bands followed. Rites of Spring, Happy Go Licky, One Last Wish, and then Fugazi took everything to a new level. Fugazi was punk, but also alternative before its time, with funk, reggae, and progressive elements thrown in there too. Canty teamed up with singer-guitarist Ian Mackay and bassist Joe Lally in 1987, and singer-guitarist Guy Pachotto of Happy Go Licky joined soon afterward. His Fugazi lineup wouldn't change. Their self-titled first EP from 1988 kicks off with what's still their most famous song, the ska-inflected Waiting Room. Did Canty have a sense that they were recording an all-time classic at that time? Why was the band's time spent touring Europe so essential to its development? What does Canty dislike most about touring? At first, Mackay dominated the songwriting, but soon everyone else got involved. Many songs started from a riff that Canty brought in. He tells how Fugazi became more collaborative and improvisatory as it moved from the debut album 13 Songs, which combined the first two EPs, to the similarly acclaimed Repeater. These early works were considered a precursor to the alternative rock boom. What happened when Ahmet Erdogan showed up in Fugazi's dressing room to try to convince the band to sign with Atlantic? The argument from 2001 was Fugazi's seventh and final album. Why did the band go on, quote, indefinite hiatus in 2003? Why are its values in conflict with a possible big reunion? Canty has done much since then. He has written soundtrack music for the National Geographic and Discovery Channels and elsewhere. He has directed documentaries featuring Eddie Vedder, Wilco, and others. And he made a series of concert films set in houses that were about to be demolished. sang and played guitar in the band Death Fix. Why did that band release only one album? He toured with the late Wayne Kramer to mark the 50th anniversary of the MC5, and he has made two albums with the instrumental trio Mesthetics, which includes Fugazi bassist Joe Lally, plus guitarist Anthony Pirog. A new album recorded with jazz sax player James Brandon Lewis is coming soon on Impulse Records with tour dates to follow. Which does Canty prefer at this point, playing structured songs or open-ended ones that allow for more improvisation? And what advice does he give his teenage daughter now that she's also in a band? Canty has much wisdom to share with her and with us. Please enjoy this Pop conversation with Brendan Canty. Well, thanks for coming on, Brendan. I'm really happy to have you. Yeah, my pleasure, man. 
I'm always happy to, to get on the mic. Are you in D.C.? I am. Yeah, I've been um, in D.C. since 1967. I so moved here when I was one out of New Jersey. Um, well, I was moved here, I will say, out of New Jersey when I was one. You didn't have agency in that choice. I, I, I'm going to guess I fought kicking and screaming. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and shitting my pants. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I've been in the same, I've been in the same um, area my whole life, honestly. And then I've raised my four kids here as well in the same neighborhood, going to the same schools. And um, I, it would have driven me mad, except for that I got to leave a ton over, you know, my life to go on tour and, and things. But um, DC is a great place to grow up. It's a great place to have kids it's a, you know it's residential and tons of activities tons of nightlife tons of uh things to do and you can get to them you can it's easy it's easy for the kids to get out to the clubs and they're all all ages so it's a very arts forward place i think how much did growing up in and being in dc kind of shape your musical identity i, I think a hundred percent I mean, I was like, I grew up like, um, you know, in the D.C. public school system, listening to lots and lots of soul music, lots of uh, um, go-go and funk and and uh, disco, huge disco head. Um, so things like, I mean, I, I also had older hippie brothers and sisters who were super politically active. I'm number six out of seven kids. And so, yeah, so we were we grew up with people sleeping underneath our, you know, sleeping in, a, in the living room at, for protests and things like that. Um, but also, you know, so, yeah, I mean, my youth, it's I'm an extension of it. A hundred percent. I didn't it's not like one of those things where I just was like washed my hands of my childhood and walked away because i was you know miserable i i really like i <laughs> i really loved growing up here i really loved being part of a big family well honestly you and i have this in common because we're both raising our families in the hometowns we grew up in so is that right couldn't have been that bad yeah no exactly yeah and chicago is one of those towns too man it's a great town you know it's 100 percent like you, there's no need to leave if you don't if you in luckily like, i was able to you know when um buy a house you know, 27 years ago. So it's like, if I was doing it today, I'd be uh, living in Greenbelt, Maryland or some somewhere, some far reaches of, or maybe up in Montana or something. I don't know, but nobody can afford it here anymore, unfortunately. And I think it's always good to have left and have traveled around and have lived in other places, you know, even if you end up back or, you know, pretty close to where you started from. But at least if you've had, like you, you as a touring musician you've it's not like you've been just kind of like isolated and you have this like insular worldview because you've been in the same town all this time yeah i mean i will say covid has tested that right oh yeah was, everyone uh, got the insular worldview from that but utter madness it's not what i'm uh, i was not ready for it so but luckily we're getting back out this spring we're, we have a record coming out march 15th and we'll be um on the road in march and may and july and september Mesthetics record. It's a Mesthetics with James Brandon Lewis. We're sort of like uh, teamed up with this jazz saxophone um, player, James Brandon Lewis, and it's coming out on Impulse, and it's like more in the jazz world. I'm really psyched about it. We just played it for the first time up at Winter Jazz Fest uh, two nights ago. So will it be the four of you on tour together then? Yeah. 
the four of us on tour. Not not everywhere, but it'll be if if it's just the Mesthetics, it'll be listed as the tree. It'll be listed as the Mesthetics. If it's Mesthetics with James Brand Lewis, it'll be listed as such. So, but most of them are with him. Um, it's just in the summer he can't do the July dates, so we're gonna, we're doing this without him. Nice. Yeah, and and going forward, we'll be doing you know some some trio and some quartet ones. So he's great though. He's a monster. You're gonna love it. Oh no, I can't wait to hear it. And 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 also again, this the way that you kind of you know cross these boundaries and go back and forth among you know rock and jazz and all these other like you're you're obviously not pinned down into one you know style of music. And so hearing you sort of you know take this, but veering a little more in the jazz uh, direction will be really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. You grew up in D.C. and you had these older siblings who were hippies and exposing you to all this music. And your dad was a, was a musician, too, right? No, no. My dad was a writer and an editor. He was an archi- He ran Architecture magazine and uh, did a lot of urban renewal writing um, back in the 60s, kind of politi- political, had a magazine about urban planning called City for a long time and then went into the pol- political side or he was in, on the political side of that, of uh, dealing with, you know, the they were doing. The Johnson administration was doing a lot and around that uh, about um, urban renewal and uh, this, you know, whatever, like uh, bulldozing, quote unquote, slums and things like that. And so there was a lot of open debate about all that stuff. And he was on a road, had a very cool magazine called City for a lot of years until the owners died or the benefactors died in the Bermuda Triangle. But um, then he went on to do, um, he got ill for a while, and then he went on to be the editor of the AI journal and in, into architecture. But I will say, I should say, he was a musician. I mean, he did play all the time. He, he was a great piano player. Yeah, he was not a professional musician, but he was a, uh, but he was, he did play around the house, and we were very much, everybody in the house, in the family is musical in one way or another, and he's a, uh, and he played jazz piano. He loved jazz. He saw all the great players back. Um, you know, he was born in 1929. So in the late 30s, you know, and 40s, he was seeing Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald and, um, you know, Miles Davis. And he's seen, he saw everybody. So he didn't really truck with the punk rock stuff, to be honest with you. He was, he was very supportive of me being like a musician, but he wasn't like, he didn't necessarily like pretty much anything. <laughs> I did. I did. He was super, a super jazz head, and I'm, you know, I'm sad he's not here to see me actually end up on Impulse because he would be super. Oh sad. yeah, yeah. Do you remember the first album or single you ever bought yourself? I mean, I, I was, I, I think it was probably uh, like Mr. Jaws or something stupid <laughs> at a novel, not at a novel up in GC Murphy's. You know, it's, the Dickie Goodman collection. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, as a Doctor Demento freak, I was probably I was probably going into that uh, realm first. The first musical thing probably would have been like Rubber Band Man by the Spinners or something like that. Or I mean, I, these are just singles I, I remember having. I remember having, you know. A Who single and I mean Murphy sold singles, so I was really young when I was buying all that stuff. Well, you know, buying like and and it would have been like in probably the mid mid to late seventies. So I I went heavy into um, disco, but then also just like got into like um, funkadelic and stuff like that. We had funkadelic records around the house, and so they were putting out like One Nation Under Groove was coming out when I was like 
11 or whatever and so i was i was super into that stuff i loved i loved all the funkadelic records the aqua aqua booty affair and all that stuff was like concurrent with me being in junior high and so those those records were super important to me the big weird psychedelic records you know and then my then i was like oh well here's a copy of cosmic slop sitting in my brother's record collections you know funkadelic and trying to figure out who was in funkadelic and who was in uh parliament and all that stuff so i loved all that stuff and then when i got into punk rock i was like oh fuck all this stuff and i threw it all away and then i like almost immediately bought it all back (laughs) I literally got rid of it all. It's hard to find original copies of that stuff now, too. You know, it's like, yeah, you can find a good clean copy of Maggot Brain. You're in good shape. I know. That's a that's a tough one to find. That's a tough one to find. But I have, you know, I worked in a record store for a long time or in a couple different really good record stores. So I actually got a lot of them back, including like really great copies of like America Eats Its Young and stuff. So I love all those records. I still love those records so much. If I put them on, I go to a very special place in my head. <laughs> was drums your first instrument, or did you pick up something else first? I played bass first, and I was given a bass uh, early on. Uh, we always had—I mean, we also had instruments around the house, you know. And my my mom would often rent my father instruments for his birthday. Be like, "Oh, it's his birthday. I'm going to rent him, you know, a vibe, a set of vibes for a couple months." And that, that we'd have vibes around the house for a couple months or or a drum set and one of them was a drum set. And then my dad would jam with some people down the street who had were played jazz and they were and there was a drummer and um and a stand-up bass player and stuff. And so I'd go over there and I'd watch that and it was saw it in a uh, somebody's living room like i saw some people playing in a living room i was like oh this is incredible i never put two and two together like i could never never thought i could do it but um but um then i started playing bass and then I, and and guitar and then my brother was like oh you should play drums because if you play drums you'll always be in a band and if you're in a band you'll always have a girlfriend that's the way he put it so. <laughs> So I was like, okay. Did it work out that way? It did. I didn't know I was going to have the same girlfriend for 37 years. But yes, that's that's the way it worked out. And you've been in a lot of bands, too. So I have been more in more. I've had more bands than girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, yeah, so it's, I ended up, I started playing drums just like, you know, young. I was 14 years old and pretty shittily. And then... Um, you know, just got better. I really got better when I got into Fugazi and we started playing. We played a thousand shows and playing in front of people really um, will uh, get. That's the only way you really get better is if you, you know, play hours at a time in front of people. The Beatles Hamburg thing, the 10,000 hours. I mean, I think it's true. <laughs> I hate to say it. <laughs> I would kill for a residency in my life. I would love to be able to show up someplace and just play all night long. Um you know, the the thing that kills me the most about touring is like the 23 hours off you have to de- you have to deal with, you know, before you hit the stage again. So, um, yeah, I love playing. Well, when you two moves out of, uh, you know, that thing there in <laughs> Las Vegas, you guys could go set up there. Exactly. It looked like they needed a drummer, to be honest with you. <laughs> they, 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 yeah, they have a different drummer on there. I haven't... Uh, I haven't heard how he sounds. It's it's sort of weird to read these U2 reviews and then kind of like as an aside, it's like, oh, and by the way, different drummer. <laughs> by the way, yeah. Yeah, that, that was really, uh, that was a mistake, I think. I think it's somebody you should not, 
you shouldn't fuck with that chemistry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like the one band that had the same core all that time. So, and he started the band. Right. <laughs> Other than that. Other than that. Exactly. So when you were like younger and learning drums before you had your 10,000 hours of becoming, you know, the awesome, you know, ranked on all these greatest drummers of all time lists, would, were you playing along with, with records? Like, would you put on something? And, no, and like, so was, tried... it, was it like jazz stuff or was it rock stuff? Like, what were you? It was all rock stuff. It was basically Earl from the Bad Brains, just trying to play as fast as possible. I met when I was 14 years old. It's like you just you just try to, um, I mean, at that at that time. I mean, I was talking to Skeeter or Enoch Thompson from Scream, who came to our show the other night, and we were just talking about that. That's That was always the high mark. And anybody who plays, like, punk drums or loud drums or fast drums or whatever when you listen to earl from the bad brains play he he swings so hard he just sounds he sounds like a jazz player playing um punk rock because it's like you he's got his open hat everything's fluid everything's he seems effortless and yet it's like powerful and beautiful and keeps everything super propulsive so i was just trying to be him you know, every step of the way. And then I got into other people like the Buzzcocks and um, more conceptual writing of drums, you know, where people actually, you know, start putting together beats that really serve a, the track um, and listening to, you know, program drums and different things and just starting thinking more about writing. Um, and so when we're in like, in rights of spring like i was i was more in the buzzcocks frame of mind and like you know um more song driven but also party but then when we got into fugazi it was really like the song didn't for me ever really fully take shape until i could actually feel comfortable that i had written quote unquote written a part which is not necessarily where i am now now i'm back to this like let it let it respond to the music 100%, you know, and 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 respond to what's being played on stage and we're writing more open-ended things so that we can do things more in the moment. I was going to ask you that uh later. I'll ask you now just about like whether I mean you sort of were just answering it, but just whether you prefer sort of working with kind of, you know, tightly composed songs versus, you know, kind of improvisations. Well, so there's 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 two aspects to, to all this stuff. There is like the all the written all the very written stuff that happened in in Fugazi, which was like everything had, you know, distinct parts. But then we also, as a band, would show up and we never had a set list. You know, we'd just say, okay, we'll start with this and the second song will be this. And that was all we decided. And then it was, from then on, we'd call songs through me, like Ian would tell me what the next song was going to be. If Guy was singing, Ian would tell me what the next song is going to be and vice versa. And they would tell me and I'd tell the other guys. And then... Um, while we were, while, um, so that open, allowed for a certain amount of open-endedness about things. So that, so you write the part, but then once you actually play the show, like, um, you also write into those songs and into the interstitial parts, some, some level of improv. And so those moments that happen and some of the songs are also, um, open-ended, like a song like Glue Man or, you know, there's plenty of songs that we had and in rights of spring as well we had super open ended songs and then in between there i was in a band called happy galicki which was also completely completely open-ended and this and that was all like kind of you know in a musical equivalent it would have been just like uh or in a rock equivalent we've been like jamming 
to you know it's not it's not necessarily jazz but it's like sculpting noise and following each other into realms that don't previously exist and all the stuff that you um you know want to get out of a good like mc5 concert <laughs> like a, a raise raise the bandstand raise the raise the room you know collective uh uh euphoria like whatever you want to call it like we want to we want to bring an energy to the room we want to trans transfer our energy to the crowd and have them give it back you know that whole thing that happens in a room when things really take off that's what you're looking for and and a lot of times like i mean not a lot of times, but I think all the time. Like people know when you're in the moment, right? I mean, they know when when the when that happens, and you can take off. So, um, um, whether and you need it. I mean, you need it every night. You can't just play a set. I mean, I've done I've done that. I've I've had a set for a tour and played the same set every night. But the you have to to me like it's only really fun when you can build in the. Uh, the unknown into your set and allow yourself to like really um take off and and explore um so 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 the way we're writing now is more like that it's like okay here's it's more like a jazz record it's more like here's the head we do that a couple times then we launch and once we (laughs) once we launch then we'll meet you back (laughs) you know meet you back at the head yeah, and I kind of presented it as an either-or thing, but like, is it a composed song or an improvisation? But usually, actually, the improvisations are part of, you know, songs that you sort of get into, and and then, you know, you're playing my favorite things, and then all of a sudden you've gone way over here, but it's not that you're not doing it in the framework of a song, it's just that you're, you've loosened the boundaries of what that song is, so you're not doing the thing where you're playing the same solo every single night, and the people in the audience expect to hear note by note what you did on the record. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Is I mean, nowadays, that's a big part of it. And it's really, like, for drums, it's really, I love all the Fugazi records. I love everything we did. But we worked, you know, we worked on those arrangements till they were really, uh, you know, for the record, generally speaking, they were pretty tight, you know. And then, uh, then more and more, as computers took over our lives, like, the records that you did, you know, that we did after that, or whatever, in general, I would say, in the world, things get a little, you know, more fixed all the time you know people are trying to you know reinforce and and perfect ideas as opposed to capturing moments on record um which is what like when we first was when rights of spring and stuff we i was we would go and we did that whole record in a day you know like i missed i was starting to miss that vibe of that instantaneous like let's just make sure it sounds good and then just kick it out and hope for the best and if it's great then we'll release it and people will hear it and people do hear it they do hear the spontaneity they do they hear the energy all the same stuff that happens in a in a room can happen on a record if you let it um and so with this record this newest aesthetics record specifically not the first two because we i mean there's some stuff on there that's like that but this new record we did it in a day we did it in a day and a half, really. And we're, we had everything kind of, we had all the ideas written. We rehearsed a little bit the day before with uh, the saxophonist, with James. And he came in and he just was like, and just for me, it did exactly what I wanted it to do. It was like totally perfect, like in terms of a recording session, a lot of first takes. And then I've spent 
um, you know, a lot of first takes, a lot of exploration, and um, and the it sounded great. Our friend Don Godwin engineered it, and it came out great. And then I was like, you know, shit, now what? And so I've been spent all, my whole time protecting the thing we love. I was like, you know, we don't need to remix it. It sounds great. We really ran with the rough mixes. I mean, we brought it home and tried to remix it, but I didn't like it as much and we didn't like it as much. And so we've really been like protecting the original moment and the, and the sounds that came out that day since then. And I, you know, and, uh, we're like, well, let's see if they, you know, um, and it's been, and and it's, it's, it's now it's coming out as such. So I'm really happy with that aspect of it. You know, with Joe Lally as the bassist mm -hmm. there, who was obviously the bassist in Fugazi, and you guys have played together for decades. Yeah. Like, like how much of a, how significant is it to, because <clears throat> I think of, you know, the bassist and the drummer are always going to have a certain bond because you guys are the rhythm <clears throat> section. Like at, mm -hmm. at this point, you know, how much, you know, how significant is it that you just have had, had all those you know, miles together. It's really significant. I mean, we, it's a really, there is like, I've, I've noticed more and more when we play together, especially live that, um, that there's just uh, a lot of very subtle communication that's going on between us that, um, just, a, a, about changes and about, um, um, uh, velocity and, <laughs> uh, tempo and everything else where, um, that uh, is so unspoken and it, we don't even need to look at each other, but it just, you hear it, you know? And if I do one thing that's like, you know, I, I mean, I could, th I literally could throw him off in a heartbeat if I, if he, cause he's so, he's kind of used to my changes and my volume changes and my anticipation of the next part and the chain, you know, he, that, um, we were really locked in, and I'm really, I'm really addicted to his um, stability. I mean, he's a really even-handed, great-sounding, stable player, and I, I always think like he's the found, he's always the foundation of all these groups because he's he gives us this really great. Um, I call it like a very sturdy jungle gym for all of us to play on, uh, sort of like Entwistle would for Keith Moon. You know, Entwistle's like phenomenally the greatest bass player, you know, on the planet. And then Keith Moon can just fuck around all the time. <laughs> and so I feel that way with Joe. He allows me to be able to to monkey about quite a bit, which makes me really happy. And same with Anthony. I mean, he gives Anthony a whole bed and it keeps everything. And um, so everybody knows what's going on. Even in, everybody in the room kind of understands what's happening. Uh, and it allows us to take it out as far as we can. Is there a different creative energy in this versus Fugazi because it's you know different other players or or do you feel like it's sort of a similar vibe? I think in the moment, I think live it's it's similar. I think our day to day, I think not. You know, like I say, like Fugazi was like a band that constructed songs a lot, and we constructed songs without like a, a musically without vocals a lot. Um, so it's in in some ways it's kind of similar. It's kind of more similar. The first couple Mesthetics records would be similar to building a Fugazi record, which is like through composed. You know, going like um, let's do this for six. Let's play this. You know, this. You know, um, and just having it and building to uh, in the 
in the writing towards a climax that happens on a record. But like with um, what's happening now is we just sort of like try to have ideas and harmonic ideas that um, and melodic ideas that sound like they have legs enough for us to explore. And then, so so in that way, we don't. I like I don't. There's only a couple instances, like like uh, it, in Fugazi, where we really had enough on record. We had we let it go as. Um, I'm trying to phrase this like I'm trying to be honest about it because I'm thinking back to all now to all the Fugazi records, and there's actually plenty. There are plenty of places on those records that we allow ourselves to explore in the studio in time wise and length and um, sonically. Um, but it's not every song. So the, in terms of the actual writing of songs, I would think that this, this, this new record really feels like different than that in that we're getting back to the more spun, you know, um, spontaneous, um, recording, uh, I don't know how to put this. I mean, on this new album, did you go into the studio, like, here are the songs we're going to do? Or were you yeah. actually coming up with songs in the studio? Oh, no. We had the songs all laid out. We, I mean, we had we knew what songs we were going to do. And we knew where the solos, I mean, we knew who was going to solo at what time and all that stuff. So, and we had charts, honestly, like we, like for, for James, especially, like things were charted out. Um, so he knew where the you know when the when what what to play during the melody and then he would solo on on top of it um so yeah i mean it's a lot of the music that we ended up with in the studio was stuff that we wrote over covid over a period of time um it's interesting now uh, joe and anthony are really uh, like joe has taken and he's a teacher now he teaches bass to people every day and uh He's gotten so much more adept at um, his theory and everything. So those guys, you know, are they communicate on that level? They're like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, try and, you know, they, uh, you know, talking about scales and trying to figure, you know, they talk in harmonic uh, uh, scales and and uh, so it's 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 a different process in that realm because you're like, well. Play something in, you know, um, you know, an E flat, you know, you know, blop, diminished, you know, and then to it, you know, so we talk like a lot very quickly in, in uh, music theory terms. And then it, it, we experiment a little bit and then we um, record a lot, mostly on our iPhone at this point because that's that's something that's quite a bit different than fugazi used to record a lot on an eight track and really try to get things and we've recorded a lot we, we released a lot of stuff that on our from our eight track and our four track um trying to you know with mics around and this 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 band is more like okay here's an idea let's get it down quickly um uh, and move on um on our iphone and then send it around on the iphone um and try to piece it together later. We're, you know, we're always working. We're always writing on, uh, writing new music or working towards the next record. So what's your role or process in the songwriting, aside from coming up with your own parts, but like in, but like in coming up with an actual song or shaping a song, 
you know, are you working on your own and and coming in with a riff or a drum pattern and then building from that? Or are you coming in with like a complete song and you know that this one started with me and this other one started with Joe or Anthony or, you know, or the other guys in Fugazi when you were doing it back then? Like, and how did that sort of change? I'm writing a lot less in Mesthetics than I ever did in Fugazi. In Fugazi, I felt like we got together three times a week for five hours at a time sometimes three to f- three four five hours at a time sometimes we were we wrote all the time when we were home and if we didn't have anything to play those those practices could be really pokey and i was like so i was always like shit i gotta have some shit to work on <laughs> you know i really always wanted to have a riff to kind of help you know the process just to kind of keep things moving forward um and so I tried to, and I, so when I was home, I was in my, in my house, I was always trying to write stuff and writing, writing riffs. And so, um, that's the way I did, that's the way I did it. So I would, I would, I always felt like for me just to have a voice and a say in the music in general and to put my, my, um, aesthetic forward, I would try to bring things in and show people parts because I can't really do it while I'm playing drums but that's not to say that that's like in any way shape or form the dominant way that things were created in that environment because the band itself jammed all the time on things and recorded all the time um so things were being written all the time in the studios on a good on, on a good day I wouldn't have anything to do with it on a good day, I could just be like a utility player and just back people up and help them. You know what I mean? I really want—I mean, I really want everybody to feel like they're expressing themselves. They're bringing their shit to the table. You know what I mean? And if we're all doing that, I'm playing my drums and being creative and just worrying about that. Worrying about like the inner the the um, the meshing of uh, of the piece. And it's just my voice and it's everybody else's voice. But that not that doesn't happen every day. You know, everybody doesn't. And sometimes you do have ideas that you really want to try um, and and put forward in, in the band. Um, but and I kind of feel the same way in this one, like in this band, like the. Um, like Anthony is such a great player. He really is. He's just lovely he's a lovely guy and he's just a fantastic player joe's a fantastic guy and a lovely player and james brandon lewis is a amazing saxophonist and so i don't have a ton of ways to to i don't i don't need to bring a ton of stuff into this band in fact when we're all playing it's almost too much music (laughs) there are too many ideas in a way too many notes too many notes yeah exactly so i feel like so lucky to be able to to sit back and just say i'm just gonna i'm gonna support you when you're when we're playing i'm gonna respond to what you're playing and i'm gonna and we'll lift each other up together and i can really be like more of a like i say like a utility player when you're writing at home are you writing on a guitar are you at a piano are you just kind of coming up with stuff while you're taking a walk i have an acoustic piano i have an electric piano I have a hollow body guild. I have a music man bass right behind me. You can take a look at. I got a couple guitars down there. I got a, a nylon string and a a, a steel string and a strat and um, we have in, and a banjo right over there. So we have instruments all over our house all the time and a mandolin 
and uh, I, I work on Pro Tools most of the time, and I, you know, I do a lot of soundtrack stuff these days too. I mean, you know, so I always have, and I really love that. It's more like, uh, you know, demoing on a four track, you know, as a kid, like it's just coming up with crazy sounds and working with the images. And I also make films too. So, I mean, nothing major, but mostly short form stuff for other, other people, but I've done a lot of films for, for different people. And I've done like, I was talking to the woman at BMI the other day. She goes, you have 600 songs up here. <laughs> I go, they're not really songs. <laughs> they're soundtrack. It's soundtrack stuff. Some of it's great. Well, you did like this isn't. National Geographic soundtracks and Discovery Channel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did like four years of uh, Hard Time, which was a prison show for Fox or for um, it was for National Geographic, which got bought by Fox, <clears throat> which then got bought by Disney. So a lot of my stuff. A lot of my music ended up following, ending up in the Disney archive of all things. And now I, it, when I get my royalty statements, I get stuff from like Naked and Afraid and weird shows like that because it's all been sucked up by the mouse and spit out again. And so it's, yeah, it's being, it's being used wherever. Luckily I'm getting, I'm getting some of that money. Um, a few times a year, four times a year. It's probably better than Spotify, uh, royalties. It's a lot better than, yeah, BMI. Yeah, it's a lot better than Spotify royalties. Yeah, the BMI, the publishing checks kept kept us going for a good long time. But you know, it's less now that everything's streaming. When it, when things were being broadcast on 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 the network, you were, I was actually making pretty good money, but off that stuff. But it's been less and less. Um, in in just be just because of that, I still do stuff, but not as uh, it's not broadcast on uh, on the networks as much. Do you write when you, you know, specifically have a project that you need to fulfill or will you also just kind of noodle around and just come up with stuff and, you know, just write for your fun and, you know, maybe you have this backlog of Carpenters like songs that you haven't seen the light of day, but you just felt like writing them. I, yes, I have a lot of Carpenters like songs and I have a lot of piano pieces that are, that are, uh, um, because I'm not, I'm not the greatest piano player in the room. They're a little, uh, I would I don't know if they're maudlin is the word, but <laughs> they're slow. They're certainly slower than they should be. Um, no, yeah, I sit around. I I play. I dick around on the piano a lot. I play guitar. I watch uh, films with subtitles so I could play guitar while I'm sitting on the couch. I mean, I literally play all the time. Something you know, um, and I play with other people too. I play bass with the Hammered Holes, and I play. Um, you know, sometimes when Mary Timoney can't make it, I play I play bass in that band, and then I play with other people in town. And I played in a band called Death Fix for a little while, where where I sang and played guitar. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that one too. You guys had like one album, and uh, yeah, so some of it's kind of power poppy a little bit. It's when you were playing with. Yeah. It was like right after you were playing with Bob Mould. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I you know I kind of I do default to to uh, songs. Honestly, when I'm on my own, I will definitely you know, default to riffs and songs and a little bit more, I guess it's power pop. I mean, I love it. I love the laws. I love bands like that. You know, I love, um, I'm a huge Beatles fan and, um, it's not all know. power pop, but like that first song is pretty power poppy. Yeah. The first and then, song. And then you have other stuff where you're still stretching out more as you'd expect you to do. 
Yeah. Did you you listen to the record, huh? I did, of I, course. I had we had another record, but you know, um uh Rich the uh moved away and so we never finished it. But I, I kinda have it in my back pocket. I kinda wanna put it out because Yeah, uh, I was wondering why that was a one off thing where you just did well, one record and then you know, Rich Morrell was the other songwriter and it was really based on our friendship and we spent a lot of time together and writing and um and we did some touring together. Um and he ended up, you know, doing some songs uh, in the Kink- Kinky Boots soundtrack, you know, the the movie, the show Kinky Boots, and then that won the Tony, and he he, and then next thing you know, he bought he built a house out on the beach, <laughs> and he was gone three hours away. So we have, we haven't hung that much. We still stay in touch, but we don't we don't write together the way we used to. I used to have a studio right near his house too. And he had a studio in his basement. I had a studio in my base in my, in this big warehouse. Um, and so it was, it facilitated that really well. It was really a lovely relationship. He's a great guy, great singer. He does like, um, he continues to write, um, and has a band called who killed Teddy bear with his husband. And he is, uh, um, always does club remixes of like Yoko Ono stuff. And I mean, he's just does, and he works with, uh, what's her name from us girls. Um, so he's all, he's constantly busy. Um, and that band, that band first had Devin Ocampo on drums and Mark Cisneros on, on bass. And then Jerry Busher played drums the, in the last iteration of it. Anyways, we'll see, we'll see what happens with it. I maybe we'll have a, uh, a uh, tour of the Beltway area, <laughs> get together for a second record or something. Sure. Well, if, you, if if you're already working on it, finish it. Why not? Well, it's already it's pretty much done, but it's just been it's just been years. There's I have other shit to do, man. That's, That's why. why. <laughs> it's hard, and it's also hard to put stuff out now. So it is, and I, w- I would probably just do it. Um, you know, do it digitally. I don't know. My my daughter's in a band called Birthday Girl, and she's like. 16 years old and put it out digitally and has had like so much love off of it and it didn't cost her a dime you know she just did we made the record here in our house and uh, you rec- you recorded and produced it yeah yeah and then she and then she put it out and she just plays around now she's going out on the road with Mary Timoney opening up for snail mail and stuff and she's 16 years old I'm like it's just so funny because our mentality is that you have to put out a vinyl record. It's if you don't put out vinyl, it's not a real record. <laughs> but it's such an it's so much work to do all that, you know, to get the I love it personally and nothing else means that you put out a record like putting out a vinyl record, but it's insanity. Did you encourage your daughter Mabel to do this or were you like, "Oh no." To sing? Well, just to like to be in a band and do this band touring you know, thing that I, you did. This band didn't, she didn't have this band a year ago. She was the one I was like, oh, I want to go. We have these free concerts at the show. I'm going to make a band this year. I mean, she's always sung and written songs, but she's like, I'm going to make a band and we're going to play here next summer. And I'm like, great. Awesome. And she did it. You know, she really did. She put put together the band and they played, started playing there and then they played all over and, um, yeah, I'm no, I don't have to encourage her to do anything. She's honestly, uh, we call her Hurricane Mabel. She's just, <laughs> she's, uh, so, but you approve, you're not like stay away from the music business. Oh, you know, no, you, you've, you've had, you've had good experiences. It seems like you're not one of these scarred people who's like, don't do them. My dad did. No, no. I mean, I, you know, you got to keep it all 
in perspective, you know, you can't, you also can't expect to get, you know, blood from a stone, you know, it's like, you're not going to get everything you need out of, you're not going to get your creativity, your happiness, your money, and everything from music. You're just not, I mean, you have to have a diverse life. I mean, I mean, you could maybe get it from music, but you're not going to get it from one band. You, it has to, you have to like think about it somewhat logically and like, um, like the soundtrack stuff. Like I, like I, it wasn't fair for me to like put lump everything, like as I was having my, you know, fourth kid to like lump that responsibility on the back of Fugazi or, uh, um, uh, or even on the back of like, uh, you know, songwriting or create, you know, like I had to do filmmaking. I had to do, um, I had to do producing. I had to do, um, soundtracks. All that stuff was not like, you know, I had to super diversify. I had to start bringing in like a lot of money to keep all these kids in shoes, you know, for so many years and still, and now they're still, they're all, you know, I have two college graduates, but I still have one in college and one about to go to college. So I still have to work all the time. You know, there's, there's no, um, there's no rest for the wicked. <laughs> well, you've directed these concert films like Eddie Vedder's Water on the Road, Wilco, Ashes of American Flags. Um, were you just interested in filmmaking? Was it was was this born out of your filmmaker and these are projects you could do? Or was it born out of like relationships you had with these musicians and you thought, you know what, I know how to present this? After Fugazi broke up, um, I was hanging and doing a lot of like political work here like doing sound music for political work and mixing commercial and just for really like nose to the grindstone trying to make a living here for a couple of years and in the process of doing that the technology there's two sides to this i lost fugazi as like a primary artistic outlet and that felt like a real loss um and then we were also having people, friends of ours, pass away. Like Elliot Smith died around then, who was a pal. And people were passing. And parents were passing. And there was a real feeling like things were transitioning and there was a lot of loss around. And so I was feeling like um, uh, kind of uh, scared about that. And then I, I, at the same time, there was this technology was coming together where digital cameras were starting to look good. Um, like that you could get an, an HVX, which is a small um, handheld video camera, and it would shoot at 24 frames. Like everything was starting to shoot at 24 frames, which looks like film. It didn't look like crappy digital uh, or crappy um, um, in an interlaced video. It like actually looked was behaving like film. And, um, and at about the same time, a friend of mine was had been given or bought bought the house across the street from him which his old neighbor who was a friend of his had passed away in and he was also a fireman and he was uh contributing he donated the house to the fire department so they could do a controlled burn in the house and he said to me do you want to do anything with this house before i tear it down and i said sure we'll have like a party in it and i'll film it of all my favorite bands in town and so um we did that, and uh, and then we fi- we filmed like eight bands um, in one day, and then um, 
the fire department came in and burned the house down and we filmed that too and then we put the whole thing together as like a uh, as a dvd called and called it burn to shine and and we put it and and um i made it and with my friend uh christoph green who i was working with at the time he was doing all the graphics i was doing all the audio and all these uh commercials um and i sent it around to different friends and i sent it to bob weston from shellac up in chicago and he was like let's do one of those here and i was like okay great and so we you know a few months later got all the bands together and he got like you know shellac played and wilco and he got wilco to play and and um as soon as wilco like we, unfortunately we weren't like allowed to burn that house down we had to tear it down with a with a bulldozer or a uh, backhoe still pretty good but um it was still some condemned house you found to do a party in exactly and it wasn't it's, and it wasn't like a party it was it ended up being more perform just straight up performances every band came in and did one song every hour on the hour for 10 hours or eight or 10 hours and then the neck you come back in a couple of days and tear the house down and put it together as a dvd anyways we did that um and wilk i mean everybody was so great and wilka was so great they did muzzle bees on it and um and then and Corey rusk from touch and go said let me put the you know let's put them out and we put them out we put them on dvds and we sold them as burn to shine it's like these editions and we did ended up doing six of them we did dc and seattle and portland and um chicago and atlanta and louisville and uh and it was just a great experience and then all a lot of the bands that were in those like including like the thermals or wilco or the decemberists like we we ended up christoph and i ended up working with them individually on concert films so that's pretty much how it happened it, ha it came from this impulse to sort of like i mean to uh, preserve bands like to film bands in a very non-bullshitty way playing their songs so that we would have those for posterity down the road you know out of pure sentimentality really like out of my concern that they were not going to be filmed and then um I, eventually it um you know it just ended up being a business <laughs> like we ended up working a lot with it you know and doing a lot of projects with wilco and doing a lot of projects with um eddie vetter and pearl jam and the decemberist and yeah all these people yeah it is kind of poignant and symbolic that's like here are these bands in a place that's going down you know this won't exist mm -hmm. after tomorrow so yeah and 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 it was like each each one of them had uh one curator Right. So I was like, just get, you know, who do you think should be there? You know, like Chris Funk from the Decemberist did it in Portland. And I was, I, you know, and we were like, oh, we're going to do one in Portland. We found a house. It's always the hardest thing to find the house. So if you find the house, then it's like, oh, we're going to do one. Who? And you ask around who should do this? Who should curate this? And then everybody says, always says the one person, <laughs> you know, you know, the right, the right person. It's always, everybody's like, always knows who the prime mover is. And they're like, oh, you got to get Chris Funk to do it. And Chris was, you know, and then they get it, um, you know, done in a day. Every booked in a day, and everybody shows up, and it's it's a blast. It's I, I love doing those. Um, unfortunately, after almost like in the middle of that thing, people stopped buying DVDs, and there was nowhere else for people to see. The, you know, the streaming thing hadn't happened yet, uh, so there was no way to get um, 
to um, to keep it going. Really, I could I couldn't keep doing it, but I might do it again. We'll see. Or we we yeah. Now that we can stream it, we might be able to do it again at some point. Christoph and I. When you're filming a, a concert film, do you have a certain sort of aesthetic in mind? Like, are you, are you thinking like, I'm more Jonathan Demi than Scorsese or, you know, just like, you know, a certain purpose of what you're trying to capture when you're doing these? I mean, I think that part, a lot of it is uh, having the camera feel like it's relating to the artist, you know? And I mean, there's, you can only direct somebody so much to to um you know like shoot the hands now you know you don't want to be that guy so basically you give you talk to your shooters a lot and you know you have like eight shooters on stage right and you're like or on stage and in the back of the house and so you try to get all this coverage right so you could do you know make sure somebody's on the face and and somebody's you know following you know whoever's singing or playing guitar at this at that specific time but you also want to get have the shooters you want to build a relationship with each individual shooter who has already proven to you that he had he can hear the music you know that you don't have to say shoot this guy and, and then the guy's playing guitar a cool thing on a guitar and he doesn't move to the hands you know or something you know it's really basic shit but it's like you don't want to you don't want to have like um you want everybody to show up comfortable enough to be able to shoot there. Is it Muddy Waters or Howling Wolf who's in that, in The Last Wolves? Anyways, the one shooter, the one footage of him playing, it's either Howling Wolf or Muddy Waters, but the only there's only one camera on him, and it was because the, the guy who was running the camera was so sick of Scorsese um, screaming at him that he took his headphones off <laughs> and he just kept shooting through it and it's in the movie but he kept shooting through his his uh, his performance but I that's what I want I want the people to whoever's shooting to react honestly to what's going on in stage and I want the people because I think the people who are watching the, sh the movie can feel that so much of it is um, is a feeling that you're trying to put out and you know it's it's un sad it's unsung and it's un it's un unwritten but you want the you want the 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 watcher the listener to feel it you know you can all you can do absolutely and, and you want and so you want the shooters to feel it you want the shooters to be in the moment you want the the performers to be in the moment and um for you know and you want to and, and the only way to do that is like to, to get people you trust give them good gear and 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 say you know follow your ears and follow your intuition it drives me crazy when i'm watching you know it's usually on tv you know some live performance uh you know concert performance or award show performance or something and it's like the director has chosen to have it shot like it's from the point of view of like seagulls attacking the stage like yeah. the cameras are just swooping <laughs> in from all these yeah. different angles all the time yeah. and it like cuts every like two seconds or one and a half seconds it's like swoop 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 and kind of circling around them and i'm like nobody watches a concert like that unless you're a bird and they don't really let birds into these auditoriums and and and, and i don't really want to experience it like i'm a bird attack in the stage but it, it's i'm like just you know let me like watch the performance the musicians are providing the energy not the camera work and i think that's yeah. you know that's not that you needed me to tell you that. No, no. Hopefully, that's the that's the truth. I mean, that's why I like doing the burn to shine thing because you're in a room. You're just in somebody's living room, you know. And yet, they know the people on, who are performing. They know that they're performing in a way, but really, they're it's a really 
they're performing. It's just so intimate and so lovely when you can get up right in somebody's grill and they know they're being watched and they know they're performing, but they're not like overperforming. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not just... trying to play to the balcony when you're in a living room. <laughs> exactly. I mean, some people did, but it's like, it's also, um, I don't know. That's one thing I'm, I was always, you know, trying to, trying to get was that, um, that intimacy of it. And it was sort of based on initially <clears throat> on, um, on this film of Elliot Smith that, um, that Jem Cohen did where he had him with, uh, I think it was like with an RE 20 or something like in a room or maybe it was like an annoyment, but, um, in a room with his guitar and just playing, just playing his guitar and singing into a mic that was like a couple feet away. And it just sounds perfect. It sounds totally honest. And it's like, it's proof that he could do it without tech, without technology, you know, without, without the, the fixing and pro tools and all that stuff, you know? Um, so to me that, that inspired me to want to, to just document as much I think I think if you can you should now these days it's a lot of it there's a lot of documentation going on just exactly the way we were doing back then like they're putting bands in elevators or putting bands you know wherever and just shooting them wherever and that's cool I'm you know and it's it's not something I'm doing necessarily so it's like um I still love I still love doing it but it's not the same. There's not. I don't feel like there's the same necessity because it's already happening to most people. Right. Mesthetics did a did a tiny desk concert, and you know it's yeah. only three songs, but that was fun. You guys sounded great, and it was like Thanks. you know, so you cluttered among all the little shelves and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was really great. I want to do another one too with this saxophone. I'm gonna try to try to make that happen. Carapop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Revolution just introduced a premium lager called Cold Time. It's an all-malt beer featuring Midwest two-row barley, Mexican lager yeast, and a touch of German hops and pure Great Lakes water. It's packaged brewery fresh and never pasteurized. The brewed low and slow badge on the can attests to a slower, lower temperature fermentation that mellows the beer for a smoother, more flavorful sip. Cold Time is available in 12 packs of 12-ounce cans. To go back to Fugazi... Yeah. How was it? Was it exciting to sort of get that off the ground? Like how first song on your first EP becomes like the signature song, uh, "Waiting Room," and yeah. and you just kind of built from there. What was that whole experience like? I think the first part of that before Fugazi became kind of—I mean, before that first EP came out, we were touring like dogs all through Europe already. We already done the states, and we're touring did a three month tour of Europe and we're kind of the record came out at the end of that tour of a three month tour as we were arriving into London and our label discord was run out from Southern studios in London. Like they were distributed by, by Southern uh, um, in London. And so they, that it just kind of almost immediately kind of blew up 
because uh, as soon as the record came out. But um, there was a ton of, um, you know, sh- sh- uh, schlepping around uh, the the Eastern Bloc and Germany and, you know, doing like three weeks in Germany. And um, it was a lot of, of real work that was happening um, before that even happened. So... And we had also done the whole demo before that record came out. I mean, we were we were building, working on that on that whole thing for you know a year or so before that happened. Having said that, when it actually came out and things started to click, people liked the record a lot, and it all happened really fast. And all of a sudden, we were playing in front of a lot of people really quickly. Um, it was really that first European tour that was like squats and things like that um, over in Europe. But by the time the second, I mean, by the time we came back over there, the next time we were playing to like thousands of people. Yeah, you, had the, you had the two EPs and then combined them for the album, yeah. which was 13 songs, which was considered like this great debut album. Yeah. Um, and then Repeater was the first one that you actually conceived as an album, even though 13 songs obviously was revered as an album as well. Yeah. And we recorded <clears throat> Margin Walker, the second half of that, on the end of that first tour when we landed in in Britain. We released that record. We, and then we, and we were like, went in the studio the day after that three, three month tour ended and tried to record a ton of stuff and really only liked about half of it. And that's when Marjorie Walker came out as an EP. So we had these two EPs and we put them together and they've lived together ever since. And nobody would ever think that they were ever apart, but they're very different um, in terms of, um, who we were as a band by the time we recorded Marjorie Walker, we were kind of much more jacked up, um, from, from touring live. Um, and yeah, and then we came back and immediately, like I say, we, we got together, you know, a few times a week for a lot of hours every day and just wrote and wrote and wrote. And so, um, the next record we did, um, the first EP and the next record we did in Don's and Tar's basement, which is like a little teeny house full of kids toys in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and you would be shocked how small that room was that we recorded those records in. even waiting room was recorded in a little teeny playroom in, uh, in Don's basement. Um, and then, yeah. And then we went on and, you know, we did, moved to a bigger he moved to a bigger studio so we moved with him as fugazi got more popular um he got more business and uh yeah and anyway. when you guys did waiting room did you think oh here's a song we're going to be known for forever no <laughs> there was even a yeah i don't know i mean there's i i don't know if it's apocryphal or not but i i have this memory of um, there was a time when Ian cussed on it and our, and our friend, uh, Ted nicely was helping us produce the record. And he was like, don't put the F word on that, you know, because you're going to, and we're like, why it's funny. And he's like, cause this song is incredible. And you're What if you get, what if you get airplay with it? And we're like, we're not getting any airplay with this. <laughs> like, nobody's listening to this. We had no designs on it, you know? And when the first record came out, I think we printed three or 5,000 maybe, and then, um, you know, by the time Repeater came out, I think the initial pressing was more like 250 or 300,000. So, so it really happened very quickly. And you guys stayed with Discord, which was an independent label for your entire career. Yeah. This is the first record I have put out that's not on Discord. <laughs> I'm 57. Oh, the, oh, the new one. Yeah. 
Im- Impulse was finally your uh, your big major label uh, sellout. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> how do, how uh, significant for the band do you think that was to to stay on you know the same indie label as opposed to you know moving up to the the big labels and all those. You know, I, I've just had so many people tell me about their big label experiences. It seems like yeah, you, know, you guys insulated yourselves from that a little bit. Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, so you definitely want to stay in control of the way that you're presenting yourself. I mean, that's really the main thing. As soon as you lose that and it goes out, people, other people start telling your story and pushing it in different ways. You know, you start you start feeling at odds with yourself and your own narrative, you know, and you're like, you know, it it feels like it feels really bullshitty when you hear other people tell your story, you know, from the record label. You're like, let me tell my story. <laughs> I want to be out there, you know. And so you, the, so the having it on Fugazi and having I wasn't, you know, an owner of Fugazi, but Ian was and Ian and Jeff own the label and their accounting is like totally impeccable. You know, I mean, they they don't overspend on anything and they basically pay you you know, your share, it's basically like a profit sharing 50, 50 split with the band. And it's like, and, um, and so, um, and it's also, there's a lot of hometown pride in it. I mean, honestly, like I just always loved the records that discord put out. They were, they put out and they put out rights of spring and they put out, you know, my first band deadline was on the first comp that they ever put out when I was 15 years old. I mean, like that's how long it's been. It's been forty-two years on that label, so it's no joke. I st- and Ian still is religious about paying his bands what they earn, and sends it out, and you know, hangs out, talks to people, and like is everybody's pal. And he's a true. It's you know, I mean, he's a he's the real deal, you know. Um, and the people who write the check, I mean, he writes the checks himself, but the people who do the accounting and everything, like we know everybody at the label, they're all friends and they always have been, you know, and we, so many of our friends have gone through there on their way to doing other things. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it was really crucial to the whole, to the whole, um, to the whole business of what we were, of what we were doing, what we were trying to achieve for sure. I've seen those early Fugazi records as described as like the beginnings of alternative rock, you know, like pioneering alternative rock. And and I'm wondering, you know, whether, you know, as, you know, grunge and Nirvana and, you know, this kind of guitar rock was considered more commercial. Did did you have labels, you know, saying, look, we're we're gonna make you an offer we don't think you're gonna refuse? I mean, did you did you turn down stuff that you just like you're just like, nah, this isn't what we're about? Yeah, we had Ahmed Erdogan in our dressing room. Like saying, let it, let me, let me, let me, um, you know, come to Atlantic. And then I was like, I don't know, you know, and I, I left and I went up and I was hanging out with, uh, at the tables and there were a bunch of his people were there and they were like, Hey kid, take the money. <laughs> literally, <laughs> they literally said that to me. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And then we didn't, and we didn't, we didn't sign with them, but it was cool to meet Amon Erdogan. He's the, he's a hero. So um, you guys are right for Aretha, but not for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, not a good fit. Um, no, I don't know. It's uh, but it, that was the, it was like you know the it's sort of like what comes first, right? It's like we didn't invent this crowd of people. You know, that's this was this was, this was happening all over the place. You know, there were band people were showing that that the the fact that people were showing up to these gigs was that was a we had a healthy ecosystem 
of independent music all through the 80s that grew a crowd of people who trusted, who were listening to what people were saying, you know? And it wasn't just us. There was like, you know, the Meat Puppets and Black Flag and all the the Minutemen, all these bands like that people could, you know, the Replacements or the... You just name it. There was a million great independent bands all through the 80s that grew that crowd. Um, so, I mean... I, it to me to me it's like it was uh it was happening you know it was uh, not just happening to us it was happening to everybody everybody was getting bigger crowds all the time and then so at some point every the the major labels were like how do i get a piece of this crowd that's what they were looking for they weren't looking for the bands they were looking for the the people <laughs> In the crowd they want those numbers you know and so that's that's and you know you we could i could feel that i think we all could feel that it wasn't about us it was about the numbers that we were pulling did you guys ever give yourselves sort of internal pressure of like well what can we do to become bigger or raise the game or was it really like we're just going to do what we do and we really don't we're not going to care about that other stuff I mean, we worked every day. I mean, I felt like the entire time through Fugazi, I was always halfway up the hill. I never felt like a quote-unquote success because we were working so hard. So I never felt like we arrived. But I did notice that we're like, oh, shit, we just played to 16,000 people. You know, that's a lot of people. You don't think about it, but then it happens. And you're like, oh, that's a marker. That's a sign that uh, we're doing all right. And uh, But we still got to get up tomorrow and work you know i mean it's it's um it's a weird thing it's like none of this is um none of the way i feel now about what happened is the same as i felt in the moment because it's already been the story of fugazi's already been written like the ending of it's all written and it's it's like kind of like a perfect bookend of like we put out these records that we're proud of every record we did it this way we were able to do it this way you know we played sometimes we but did six dollar doors or whatever door you know how much they were but we kept our prices down we we worked with people we loved and we put out the records with discord and we like did it this way and we didn't we didn't have to compromise at all right so it looks like in the in the long form like it's a perfect story for for what it is you know but if we had continued on i mean the, the you know there 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 were pressures happening there was like you know kids coming down the pike i was the first person to have kids but it was like everybody has them now and that that changes a lot of uh, the way a band behaves so your last album was the argument in 2001 um and then i think two years later you went on indefinite hiatus what was what was the what was the story behind that? Why did you guys go on indefinite hiatus? And uh... we're still enjoying that the indefinite hiatus indefinitely. Why did we phrase it like that? Well, why did we're, yeah? I think there was what, what was the reason behind you doing it in the first place, and then why did you phrase it like that? Why did we decide to hiatusize? <laughs> Definitely um, or indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, mostly it was a. Uh, a question of um, I you know the third my third kid was coming I was uh, also my wife's father had passed away uh, other people's parents were passing away um, life was coming at us in a way that was signaling 
to me anyways, that we had to be, we had to be home and we were going to have to change structurally the way we did things. Now, looking back on things, I probably would have said, let's just tour every once in a while for a couple weeks at a time and like keep this in our lives because we all are still, it's really dumb because we're still in each other's lives. We still talk to each other <laughs> all the time and we still like play, you know, I play with Joe all the time and I played with both Ian and Guy and, and we've all played together from time to time, you know, it's like it, every once in a while and we always get together for dinner. It's just so, but it, so ultimately I don't want to take on the mantle responsibility for all of it because obviously if it was meant to be, we'd all still be doing it. But, um, um, at the time it felt like life was coming at us really hard and we needed to take a break. And so when we took a break, nobody wanted to say we have broken up. Um, and in a way, in a certain way, I already, I still feel like we haven't broken up because we do have like quote unquote band meetings and still still put out things every once in a while and did the live series, which is all the live, there's a thousand live shows up there in the live archive that anybody could download. And if you just go to Fugazi live archive, you can look up every show that's ever been done. You could see the set list. You can download the audio. You can see postings from people who went to those shows. Um, and we have a shit ton of backlog of stuff that we could put out, like demos and things like that, that we have. We record it all the time and we have, we have drawers of tapes. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. But ultimately, I would love to write and play with them again. But, I, you know, who knows? It's just the time is, is, um, the time is a little uh, fleeting. At this point, have, have the four of you been in a room together with instruments? Yeah, we've been, yeah, multiple times. We have played together multiple times, yeah, for and it's been great. Just for fun? Just for fun. Isn't that crazy? But you, but you never thought, hey, you know, what if we did this at Coachella one year or something? Yeah, right, exactly. No, that would be this, that would be a smart thing to do, but we didn't do that, no. I mean, I, I don't, honestly, I honestly, like, the, the hard part of, the hard part of it always was in post-Fugazi world is visualizing a way that Fugazi could behave like Fugazi without behaving like Fugazi. Meaning, like, like how do we do it 20% or 30%? Like, we literally did it 100% all the time. Like, when we went on stage, it was 100%, like, you know, full throttle, give it everything you've got every time. And um, and same in the writing. And it's like, you, there's you're just not going to... None of it, none of it is, is an easy, there's no easy way to do it. I mean, maybe I, I you know, and it's, I don't know. That's so, so to me. The, the approach you're taking with aesthetics is not something that would work with Fugazi. Right. I don't think so. But I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like, I know. And part of it is like being sort of um, holding ourselves to a, a standard that doesn't, you know, that is, might not be true which is to kind of do it the way we did it when we were ages 20 to 35 you know um maybe but i don't i also don't want to necessarily like i don't know if we can go out there and tour for cheap ticket prices the way we used to and you know i mean god knows like people try to do that and then every ticket sells for 500 dollars you know like the open market on everything like if we tried to do like a small limited thing in a little room with or even in like a 2000 seat theater and we try to sell tickets for five bucks or whatever we want to sell it for and then things go through the roof it'd be a fucking nightmare 
And that's all you hear is 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 things like that happening. So yeah, like if you played at Riot Fest or something like that, or again, or Coachella or Bonnaroo or whatever. I mean, those are just like big, expensive. You know, spending your month's allowance on the ticket kind of thing, and that's not really what you guys do. No. Even though if you even if you did like you know Riot Fest and like we're gonna Fugazi plays its classic album, whichever one, you know, yeah. people would show up obviously, but you that doesn't vibe with what you guys are interested in it sounds like yeah no <laughs> in a short <laughs> yeah no <laughs> yeah yeah no not happening it's just not happening no i mean it's not nobody's nobody's interested and in, i mean it'd be such a it'd be a hard thing to do but you just got to show up in some abandoned house and start playing and you know open the, doors, <laughs> open the doors i'm telling you man friend here who has a has a has a garage here he calls it the barn and he'll just you know they'll, they'll play in the, the the play in the barn and he'll open the garage door and sometimes people will come out there, but you guys should just reunite in the barn. I think that should be it. You guys just I mean, come, to, come to Chicago, play in the barn. Oh man. I'd love it. I'd love to play the hideout, man. I'd love to, oh, I'd love to see you at the hideout. That would I be love great. The hideout, man. It's my favorite club up there, but you know, you guys have a lot of great clubs up there. You know, um, I agree. We'll see what happens down the road, but um, you know, none of us is getting any younger. I'll say that much. You know? What was it like sitting in on Seth Meyers' band? It was fun. Yeah, Eli Janney, the musical director. and I mean, I've known Fred for a long time. I've, because When he was in Trenchmouth, we used to play with them. Um, all our bands used to play together when he was the drummer of Trenchmouth. But Eli Janney and I met each other sitting next to each other in junior high um, at Alice Deal Middle School. And so... He is an old friend, and everybody, Sid Butler in that band, they're all D.C. guys. I mean, not all of them, but but uh, there's a very strong D.C. contingent there. And so um, anytime I can do anything with Eli, I love it. He's a great guy, He's a, and uh, we, he's still, when he comes to town, stays at my house and comes. we go to on vacation together and yeah he's an old friend so it's, it was a blast and i you know hope to do it again well Anyways. thank you so much i really appreciated uh talking to you for this it was really fun <laughs> so nice to meet you that's all for episode 120 of carol pop thanks so much to brendan canty for combining such ferocious talent with such a reflective approach to work and life you can find the music from Canty's bands, including Rites of Spring, Happy Go Licky, Fugazi, Death Fix, and Aesthetics, on the label Discord's website. That's Discord with an H dot com. Aesthetics also has a Bandcamp page, and look for Aesthetics' upcoming album with saxophonist James Brandon Lewis on Impulse Records. It's Canty's first release away from Discord. Aesthetics kicks off a tour March 21st in Boise, Idaho, before moving to Knoxville, Nashville, Atlanta, D.C., and other cities still to be announced. Go to discord.com backslash tours. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who shuts the door on any problems. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Please give whatever you'd like on carolpop.com. We appreciate you all. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Caro Popcast. And you could follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, and tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop Conversation. Thanks.